Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone, my guest today is an archaeologist and senior lecturer at the University of York. Formerly also a field archaeologist in residence at Cambridge University, they have directed major excavations across Britain, including Silbury Hill in Wiltshire, the largest Neolithic monument in Europe. A passionate walker, much of their research centres around the way that people moved in the past, and their new book, Footmarks, was published earlier this summer. Footmarks takes us on a restless journey that traces 3.5 million years of human movement, in turn exploring the relationship between our ability to travel and power. From early hunter-gatherers to drovers and pilgrims to migration, Footmarks shows us how movement has shaped our world. Archaeology through this lens is far from static. And I've just been saying that I'm really excited to do some learning <laughs> in this conversation as well. So I'll now allow them to introduce themselves in the manner of their choosing and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm Dr. Jim Leary, um, or just Jim, that's fine. And yeah, I'm I'm an archaeologist. I'm looking forward to having a chat with you about putting one foot in front of the other. Brilliant. You like to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jim, we're talking over Zoom and, and hopefully the sound quality will come through um, because we've had a few problems with connection. <laughs> so just done the classic, turn everything off, turn everything back on, disconnect everything else connected to different devices. Um, but just the um the you know that that medium of zoom almost seems kind of counterintuitive after my introduction to your research area so i'm curious just to to start us off what drew you to your specialism in prehistory and has the distant past the the far far distant past always been um something of a fascination to you yeah it definitely has um my interest in archaeology came from uh, walking, actually, when I was a teenager, walking my walking the dog, um, and I lived down in Sussex, um, and walking around farmers' fields, ploughed fields, and spotting these sort of bits of flint that looked like they'd been <clears throat> napped, and collecting them as, as schoolboys, you know, school children do, out of curiosity. And then one day I found a, an, an arrowhead, 
I, I wish I had it with me to show you because it's the most beautiful thing. Um, perhaps I'll put it up on on Twitter or Instagram later on. But it's it, it was beautiful arrowhead, and it was made in the Neolithic period, and it's a period that began around about six thousand years ago, um, and lasted for only about fifteen hundred years. Um, so only you know sixty odd generations, but it was such a key period. It's the period when we went from being hunter gatherers to farmers. So it's the first early farmers which we now know are uh, traveled from the continent themselves you know we've we've always been able to trace farming across Europe and then finally into Britain around 4000 BCE but we've often wondered whether that's the idea of farming and seeds and domestic animals being traded and sold that is moving we now know from ancient DNA that it's actually people moving um, so it's a, it's a really key period when people trans transition from hunting, gathering, farming, new people coming in, new ways of thinking about the world, because farming is a very different way of thinking about the world and hunting and gathering. And with them, they brought pottery, um, so ceramics for the first time in Britain. Um, it's found in the archaeological record. And they start creating new arrowheads, different arrowheads, arrowheads that are not designed for um, sort of hunting in woodlands, but actually for, for something else. And, and um, uh, that's what I found. And and this whole amazing period, almost, um, you know, I hate to say it, but sort of almost Tolkien-esque period just unfolded in front of me as I found that arrowhead. And it just really, you know, it zoomed me back to that period. And I've just been absolutely fascinated by it ever since. And, you know, along with all of this sort of package of domestic species, domestic animals like cattle and sheep and pigs, and um, domestic cereals for the first time, they also start creating monuments. Um, and so this is the first time we start seeing these really big monuments, you know, beginning with massive timber halls, but then going on to long barrows and causeway enclosures, and then finally stone circles and wooden circles and henge monuments. And these are really key, uh, you know, iconic monuments from our past. And they all belong to that that Neolithic period, those 60 generations. Um, and so, yeah, so I've just been utterly, utterly enthralled by it ever since. And I've excavated some amazing monuments, as you say. Sil you know, I spent a year inside Silbury Hill excavating it um, some time ago now. And, uh, you know, it's just been an absolute privilege to work on some of these monuments and to think about the Neolithic period. And, of course, part of that is... is them moving and and moving around the landscape and migrations and so on. So all of my interest really comes from that, um, from wanting to understand that period better. It's really interesting as you're describing it and that kind of early fascination when you were younger that history almost sounds like it was never flat for you. Um, in in my head, it was almost as if you were opening a pop up book in a way and and looking at it very three dimensionally yeah much much more immersively actually and that's the for, for me and and you know i'm not disparaging any other discipline but for me the real difference between archaeology and say history or classics or ancient history or any of these things is that archaeology is so much more immersive um and i know that historians would argue the counter and and you know, would have loads of examples. But just for me, that's, you know, archaeology is much more down, literally down to earth. You know, it's much more literally, again, grounded. Um, and, you know, I've always I've always loved, you know, mucking around in 
mud and soil and sand and you know that you know that sort of curiosity that every single child has which is you know just what what's in that rock pool what's under the you know what's behind the sofa that hasn't been moved for five years you know what toys might you find you know just even little things like that that's archaeology and that feeling of just what's there what's under there um has has you know that's what got me into the subject and that's never left me that's still you know I'm, I'm just so you know, I just just love that sort of the immersive quality of archaeology and from that period of digging behind the sofa as you've mentioned you've you've worked on some pretty impressive projects um and just for for the audience if they're they're not familiar with it could you explain the significance of Silbury Hill and how you came to take charge of that particular dig Mm, yeah, so Silbury Hill is an amazing monument. It's it is unique um, in the world. It's the well, it's often described as Europe's largest prehistoric monument, um, and it is. It's a it's a huge, great big mound. Um, it looks like a sort of pudding bowl turned upside down, um, and it's in Wiltshire within the world Avebury part of the World Heritage Site, um, and not far from Avebury Henge actually. Um, and you can't miss it. It's right on the A4. You drive past, and it's this whopping great big thing. It's about thirty meters high, so it's, it's it is truly monumental. I mean, it's millions and millions of work hours in there to create this huge, great big mound, and there's no burial in it. So you know, the obvious thing is, what, what is what is a mound? Well, it's it's obviously cover it. You know, it's, it's obviously a, a, a sort of you know memorializing some something or someone but there's no burial in there so it's something else altogether and um archaeologists have been sort of digging into our antiquarians and archaeologists have been digging into it since 1776 probably before that even actually but the earliest records go back to 1776 when a shaft was dug down and you know obviously they were hoping to find gold and things there was a myth that there was a big gold horse um, in the or a big gold man striding a gold horse buried in the middle of it, and so obviously that's what these early antiquarians were after, treasure hunters, really. And um, they didn't find that; they didn't find anything. But what is preserved in it is is organic material. Um, so actually, um, so all of these early sort of diggings into it, unfortunately, led to a, a collapse on the summit in. Um, uh, in, in the year 2000 and then subsequently there was a whole series of remediations to try and fix it and eventually it was realised that actually we just need to open up one of the old tunnels, tunnel that was dug in, in the 60s and go in and do it properly but so, so it involved lots of miners and engineers but also a team of archaeologists which I had the very great privilege of leading um, because I worked for English Heritage at the time um, also went in and, and the idea was to record and take samples and, and and so on so yeah we spent pretty much a year working on that monument in it and on the top of it um but uh what what, what was clear to us is that there, there is no burial there's no big burial chamber in the middle um there's no gold statue but but what was really important is this organic material that's preserved so we had um uh grass and moss and buttercup seeds and blackberry seeds and an ant's nest and you know these sort of things that you just don't um generally ever find from archaeology or from that period 
um, were, were, were preserved almost perfectly. The Beatles in there were absolutely extraordinary. So it's this sort of that was the real treasure inside Silbury Hill was this snapshot of what the environment was like. Um, and and we know that it's it's it was built around about two thousand four hundred and fifty BCE um, and took a number of generations to go from nothing to something. So it's quite a long lived, relatively long lived monument. So and right at the end of the Neolithic period, so just as we were kind of going from being Stone Age to the first earliest metals coming across and and being used and um, sort of a very different way of life. So it's quite it's a really interesting period. That's right at the end of the Neolithic period. So yeah, it was um, it was just an amazing site. I mean, you know, career defining site to work on, and um, an absolute joy actually, a privilege. That sounds incredible. And I'm interested in that sort of balance also. As you say, there's a lot of folklore that surrounds Silbury Hill. Is there a space for that alongside what for you are actually the the truly magical stories that emerge from the everyday things that you find as well that then bring a world to life? Yeah, there's, there's absolutely space for that. Um, it's all part of what makes that monument, that monument, and that's true of all monuments. We have another, you know, wonderful monument near us um, called the the Devil's Arrows, which are great big Neolithic standing stones. And there's all sorts of myths around that, about going around it and um, saying, uh, you know, saying the devil's name, I think, and as you're going round, can call up the devil and the ideas that it was... Um, <clears throat> thrown down by the devil. There's all these stories. These are all part and parcel of it. They are part of the archaeology. They are what makes these monuments what they are. So they are absolutely part of it. Um, and, in you know, I think people often think that when, when archaeologists dig something, they find the answer. And if they don't find the answer, it's because they're stupid or... Um, you know, they're, 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 they're sort of too um, part of the system. And I don't know, the, the newspapers and the public generally love the kind of the rogue researcher working by themselves, actually deciphers it and works out what it is. And all these silly archaeologists can't work it out um, because they're all, you know, too, too far into the system or the matrix or whatever it is that they believe. But in actual fact, we never find the answer, particularly in prehistory. We never find the answer because there is no answer. In a sense, you know, we're not we're not time travellers. We're not we're not getting into a TARDIS and zooming back there and seeing how it was. And and even if we could, you know, if, even if I could go back to the Neolithic period and ask people around Silbury Hill, why is that monument? You know, why why have you done? I think you know you could ask twenty people and get twenty different answers about what it was. So there is no one answer, and we will never find out what that is. You know, the Neolithic period is such a remote period; it's it's beyond our uh, ken. It's beyond our sort of our, our ability to understand it. This it's, it's prehistoric, so it's pre-records. There's no written, nothing written down about it. So these, you know, presumably interpretations are passed on by oral stories which are now lost to us um so we never find the answer all we can do is look at the evidence and come up with stories so in a sense all archaeologists doing are, are adding more stories onto those layers of story um and you know in in, in, a, in a sense 
um, it's kind of it's a bit of myth myth making. We 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 and you know as humans we we need stories and we love origin stories um, uh, and creation myths and that's what we archaeologists do. We kind of add to them. It's not about um, saying well what what absolute nonsense if you believe that this this monument was created by the devil throwing down a you know the devil's arrows or the devil throwing down there's another myth around silbury that it, the devil was carrying a load of soil to go and dump on marlborough or devices the whole the town changes depending on who's telling the tale but um uh, and then is confused on the way by a cobbler and just goes oh well, i'll just dump this soil here and silver hills made you know the, the stories that we come up with i mean obviously they're more modern more scientific but they're not all that much different we are myth makers really um or, or you know as i prefer to say it, storytellers um and we're using that evidence to build up a story so i think all of these i think what i'm saying is that all of these things are really important and we're also adding to them and that's what i want to do with my archaeology is to make sure that the stories aren't just being kept amongst other archaeologists um, you know, we we tend to talk amongst ourselves and we're not always so great at, at telling the wider public. And there's some amazing stories that we've worked out about. We think we've worked out about the past um, and are worth sort of wider, wider recognition and knowledge. So um, that's that's what I'm trying to do, but particularly with footmarks, um, but also with with. You know the next thing that I'm writing, and you know I'm trying to sort of say, actually, you know, this is what these are the stories we're now telling about it. This is what we now think, and this is based on this and this and this, and it's probably going to be wrong. And ten years time, will almost certainly be shown that it was wrong. But for for now, right now, this is the story. And it seems to chime very much with what appears to be central to your practice, which is taking something that is often seen as static and and behind glass in a museum case um and then re yeah absolutely and that's that's exactly what what that's exactly what these stories do is to reanimate it and that's exactly what i was wanted to do um and hopefully did do with with footmarks is to reanimate the stories about the past reanimate the past so that they aren't just this kind of um, you know, bald, shorn of any sort of context, static artifact or image or, or whatever. Um, and actually some of that, that movement is put back into it because the movement is the bit that reanimates it. Um, uh, you know, so that, that's what that's what the whole book is about. And, and in a sense, that's what my, my, you know, that's what I want to do with the rest of my career is find these stories and, and just breathe some some life back into them or at least what feels like some life back into them reanimate them so um yeah movement is a, a, a great example of that is is uh, a, a site that i i describe in in the book which is a site that I, I worked on not far from silbury hill actually so big huge henge monument one of the largest in the country called marden henge and we were excavating in it a few years ago and came across a a Neolithic building. <clears throat> These things are extraordinarily rare. I mean, you know, it's just beyond my wildest imagination that we'd find a Neolithic building. Obviously, the, the walls and the roof are on this, so we're just looking at the floor that it preserved. But even that's unbelievable. And on the floor were were pieces of flint dotted around and pieces of, of 
pottery, a type of pottery called groovedware pottery, um, left on the floor pretty much exactly as it had been when people sort of you know, walked away from that building and it was demolished. Um, and it being left untouched, it being actually underneath a, a, a bank, so it being protected for thousands of years afterwards. And it was just such an extraordinary scene. Um, and just outside this building was a big pile of animal bones, which were pretty much entirely made up of pig. And they'd all been, you know, little fine butchery marks all over the bones, and the, the bones had been burnt. So obviously this was um, food, debris, um, and it looked like joints of, of uh joints of pork um, and it had all been eaten in one go there was no evidence that it was something that built up over time um, like a kitchen midden you know like a kitchen rubbish dump might you might expect but so this is this is clearly evidence for feasting um, because it was just huge amounts of animal bone all dumped together so people were doing something in that building just before it's demolished and and perhaps as part of that closing ceremony having a huge feast. And it was this this amazing sort of scene um, that that looked like just a snapshot. And, and 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 at the time, and I described this in the book, it felt to me like I was looking at the morning after the night before, um, like there'd been a party and everyone had gone, and it was just this this silent, static scene. Um, and of course, that's as we as archaeologists, we we kind of record that and and describe it, and then it all pottery goes off to specialists and animal bone goes off to specialists and everyone starts analyzing stuff and we describe it and it's kind of you know we describe it as this snapshot from the past which is great but actually by describing it in that way we remove the movement that created it actually all of this stuff was created out of you know big party essentially um you know we we, we know they were they were brewing and drinking beer at the time so there was probably beer around and um you know perhaps it was in the evening perhaps the flames there was a big hearth in the in the building huge hearth in the middle of the building big fireplace so you could imagine flames flickering um uh the the, the smell of pork roasting um beer being drunk you know there was presumably music which we know almost nothing about. Well, we know absolutely nothing about. Um, they were probably dancing. They may have been whirling and chanting. Um, you know, it would have been a really sort of heady, sensuous moment that created all of that. Um, and yet we archaeologists never talk about that. And it just really, I mean, at that moment just really struck me. It was a sort of hair on the back of my neck stood up. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. But also we've got to do more justice than just recording it and saying, isn't this great? This is a snapshot from the past. Um, so, yeah, so, that, you know, I think that's the thing is to, is to find the evidence, but then to say, okay, so what were the movements that created all of this? And that's the, that reanimating process. And in doing that, um, I know that there's... Um, a sort of trend at the moment in in archaeological academic writing um with redignifying the people that walked millions of years before us do you see some of what you're doing and your research kind of sitting within that too i hope so yeah i mean i think that that's the greatest form of respect is to is to tell those stories that are now silent um, I think the same about human remains that that actually um, 
uh, by studying them, we're we're in a sense celebrating their life. Um, not far away from from this Neolithic building, we found a burial actually, um, and uh, it was a bronze bronze age. So it's good. Um, the building's probably uh, around about two thousand four hundred BC, and the burial was probably a thousand years later so 1400 bc in the, in the bronze age um but he was uh, a boy and he was a young boy he was 14 between 14 and 15 years old and we could be quite precise about his age because the, your bones are changing a lot at that age so um actually we can be quite sort of accurate about, about his age and the fact that he was a he um and not a she so this boy was 14 and a half 15 years old um, and buried uh, within the ditch of, of another henge monument I was excavating, um, which actually these these henge monuments are clearly ceremonial and they're clearly carried on having a, a, a religious ritual con content or connotations even later on in the Bronze Age. So actually burying someone in, a, in that ditch, that particular ditch, was was a sign of great respect, not a um, not kind of as we might expect. <laughs> wasn't like he was bopped on the head and then thrown in the ditch. It was actually sort of something that was very loving. And he was very lovingly placed um, in a sort of crouched position, like he was sleeping, actually, um, just with his sort of like that thinking pose. Um, um, and uh, not with very much. He had a, a, an amber necklace around his, his neck, but not much else. But we know that that, that he broke his collarbone at some point. Um uh, so you know that's that which is unbelievably painful if, if you've ever done that. Um, we also know that he wasn't that he was slightly iron deficient. So I don't know what what that means. Perhaps as a moody teenager, he wasn't eating his greens, or um, perhaps there was some other you know something else going on in the diet that meant he wasn't getting the irons that he needed. Um, he'd led quite a physically strenuous life considering he was still young um his joints showed signs of, of strain his legs his knee joints were, were under had been under strain so he's done a lot of walking he's done a lot of heavy lifting and this is probably part of life as a as a bronze age boy um uh, or as a bronze age person um probably walking with the herds probably you know lifting helping building stuff and so on and so on um it certainly wasn't a, a kind of um what we would now think of as a privileged life at all but i just think by understanding these things it's not disrespectful it's actually um you know this this boy can no longer speak he can no longer tell his story and actually that I, I I want to tell those stories. You know, there's a big thing in archaeology, in history generally, telling the stories of of silenced people, and and I think that that this is actually part of it. So, you know, I I, I do think it's a sign of of great respect, or I hope it is anyway, because I have such you know huge amounts of of love and respect for the prehistoric periods. Um, but hopefully that is what I'm doing is that I'm, I'm I'm being respectful by studying them and telling their stories and making sure that their stories are heard. Do you find yourself becoming quite intensely emotionally invested um, in these people, in these situations as well? Because I think people can view archaeology uh, as being solely scientific. And I say that more kind of in the clinical sense, whilst it, it sounds listening to you narrate that 
I, I think it is. I think there definitely is a a, a, a view of, of archaeologists as, as clinical, as as shorn of kind of any sense of emotional intelligence or emotional attachment to the people from the past. Um, I've spent 25 years in archaeology and I've ne not met one person that's not emotionally invested in what they're doing, that's not... Um, uh, th that's entirely clini clinical about it all. All of these things are important to them. Um, they're driven. You know, we don't get paid masses of money as archaeologists. Um, what what it comes from doing archaeology comes from just the love of it, the love of the subject, that sense of curiosity, the sense of wanting to understand the past, but also um, to to, t to tell stories about it and to you know tell stories of these of these of these people that have now gone uh, i don't know anyone that's just clinical about it and you know we've worked on some some big pretty horrific sites in you know big grave sites in london where big grave clearance sites where we're clearing graves that are i don't know not not even that old really some of them only victorian um and actually it's it's always done with with a sense of care and a sense of love um, even if we're having to do it quite quickly, it's still, you know, I think there's always that attachment. There has to be, I, 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 you know, I, um, there probably are a few people that are psychopaths and <laughs> don't don't feel moved by what they're digging, but that I've never come across them. So I think the, the, the public view of is is wrong. Um, and also, you know, that public view of, of archaeologists as, as part of some bigger system, that's uh, just a sort of emotionally shorn from from everything. But then there's this, um, you know, sort of inexperienced person working in their shed who deciphers the past. This, you know, um, and then archaeologists try to silence that person. That doesn't exist either. I mean, archaeologists generally are really open. As far as, you know, the people I've met, anyway, are really open and happy to talk about things. I don't think we're always very good at it. As I say, um, I think sometimes we do spend too long. Just talking amongst ourselves, but but uh, I think we've I think we're getting better at that. So yeah, I think people are I think archaeologists are attached to the past. I certainly am anyway. I'm thinking about that personal investment, your sort of mission to bring movement back to those that have come before us, and and to think about the way that people moved um I imagine that might come from things in your in your own life and perhaps the importance of movement to you um and I wonder if you could just reflect on that mm. yeah I mean I, I think that um uh, as, I, as I say archaeology is when we don't have a TARDIS we don't go back into the past we don't um we we, we don't uh, ever dig in the past we always dig in the present um so when we're digging a site and we're interpreting a site we're bringing all of our modern day thoughts and interpretations and practices with us and you know so we, we, when we find something we're finding it now right now um and when i interpret something whatever it is it'll be here all these henge monuments i'm interpreting it right now in the present so the present is always present in the past um and that's really important uh, so that that that's that allows me then to 
acknowledge that. And I think we probably need to be a bit more open about the fact that we're not digging stuff in the past. We're digging stuff in the present. Um, and and, there, and once you're more open about that, then you can start bringing in your own life history and your experiences and stuff to it. So this is something that I was very open about in Footmarks. With, I wanted to bring in me into the story, not for egotistical reasons, I don't think. I hope it doesn't come across like that anyway. Um, <laughs> and, um, but because... because you know, because I'm I'm part of this. We're all part of it. Everyone that's living now in the present is part of those stories from the past. So yeah, so I, I do quite. I mean, it's it's slightly wild in footmarks because I go from you know maybe three and a half million years ago to the present day, um, to you know maybe the medieval period, to back to you know almost the. Present day, then back to the prehistoric period, and and I and I flip, and it it kind of moves like that, um, and and weaves, and sometimes even actually I might go from three million years ago to the present, all in one page, uh, you know. So it 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 is slightly unusual in that sense, but that really is kind of me just sort of saying, well, actually, you know, let's let's think about these. You know, we we walk now, and we have all these emotions and these thoughts. It's not that weird um, to think that they thought that in the Neolithic period or the Bronze Age or even back in the Paleolithic period, you know. So, yeah, so, um, you know, one, one of the things that absolutely fascinates me, which which uh, I really, really loved writing about in Footmarks, and that's the, the way that we walk differently depending on our culture. Um, and that can be, you know, our our national culture but also there are cultures within that so if you're from London you know if you're certain parts of London you walk in a particular way I don't know what that is you know right Giza you know whatever it is I don't know um as an academic I walk in a particular way as well um you know often with my hands behind my back and it's a little bit more I don't know conservative perhaps um, and that changes when I'm walking around university. I walk in a particular way when I'm at home and I'm with my kids. I'm a bit more e easy. And if I'd been born in Japan or in Jamaica and or whatever, you know, I would have all, all of these places, they walk in different ways. So walking is cultural. Um, it certainly is now. Going back to, so I sort of regressed that idea. Actually, I, I start that chapter off with with John Travolta walking because that's the coolest walk I've ever seen. The particularly the opening scene from Saturday Night Fever, and it's just the the, the camera is just on his feet, um, and his feet are walking like this. And in the background, the Bee Gees are singing. You can tell by the way I use my walk. I'm a woman's man, no time to talk to. Do. So and he's walking, and he's got this bounce and this coolness. And yeah, if only I could walk like that, his life would be better. Um, you know, he's got this. You can tell he's a dancer because he's got this sort of. You can tell he's 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 well cool. And it, later on, it's funny because I was uh, sort of trying to dive into this as if it was an archaeological excavation and look into some of the sort of archive comments that he had, you know, he had discussed. And he did say in an, in an interview later on that this was to him it was the walk of coolness, and that he had learned it from his school days in Brooklyn, um, mostly from his black friends, and and so. Kind of, you know, it shows how these things are very cultural. That this this walk was the walk of coolness. Anyway, trace that back, and and actually, in the Roman period, so we're going back two thousand years now. 
people were taught to walk the right way. Um, there was a right way of walking, particularly if you were um, an elite male. So, you know, you, you had to walk in um, a confident manner, with, but in a considered way. You never ran because slaves would run. You don't flounce around because that would make you look feminine. So you have to walk in this considered way. And if you were a, a philosopher, say, or a learned person in the Roman period, then it, that was really important for you to walk, you know, you know never, never to be flustered by anything because it shows your walk reflected your mind as far as they were concerned so you wanted a cool and controlled mind so you have a cool and controlled walk and actually Ovid sets out um uh, how women should walk and that that uh, you you that they shouldn't flounce um but they also shouldn't this is these are his his words they shouldn't plod like the sunburnt wife of an umbrian farmer so, so they should they should be somewhere in between. So there were these very particular ways of walking. You're told to walk this way. Um, and so if that's true now, and it was true 2,000 years ago in the Roman period, it's not really a huge leap of the imagination to think probably in the Bronze Age or the Neolithic period, there was the right way of walking and the wrong way of walking. There was the walk of coolness. And, um, you know, there were people that, that people probably looked at someone else walking. Well, yeah, that's a good walk. That's a cool walk. And there are other people that walked and they're like, what the hell is he doing? You know, like uh, John Cleese in Ministry of Silly Walks. You look at it and go, what the hell? <laughs> I'm not going to go and talk to that person because they look completely mad. Um, so I think this idea of... of this cultural idea of walking is, is something that probably has a very long, I think it's just human, it's a human trait that we, we walk in particular ways. So, I mean, that's just one example of how using the modern day or 1970s John Travolta can actually help us, I think, understand the much deeper past. And you've made the case as well for the continued importance of footpaths which I think can become very divorced from the actual footsteps that walked along them um and and we forget that they are part of a very much living existence and I wonder if you could just reflect on the kind of the hidden stories that footpaths as as both a, a cultural artifact a historical artifact and then as as a thing that we need to embrace as a as a living, um, a living and evolving entity, um, and the importance of that. Yeah, I mean, this was this was a part of the research for 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 the book that I just absolutely loved and was a real surprise to me actually um, that these footpaths that that, or that footpaths have these histories that we don't really think about. Um, hadn't you know, I have to confess, it didn't strike me as um, unusual that when I walk down a footpath, it's lined with, with essentially with food plants. It's lined with blackberries, crab apples, hazel trees that at this time of the year are producing hazelnuts so that when you walk along, you know, you can tell there's a hazel nearby because you, your feet start crunching. Um, and so, yeah, and this this really comes from the work of of um, my colleague Martin Bell, who's who's really looked at the environmental aspects of, of of paths, and it's just absolutely fascinating. So these these plants are there for a particular reason, and they were planted. I mean, probably 
you know, well, we don't know. There's no way really of dating them, but probably hundreds, maybe even a thousand years ago. Um, the plants themselves, of course, aren't that old because as you're walking, you know, but, but they're, they're, the ancestors of these plants probably are actually that old. And as you're walking, of course, you you pick a few blackberries and eat them and, uh, and then either spit out the seeds or, um, you know, certainly in the past, you would have then when you're walking long distance has been defecating on the on the side of the paths and that produces even more plants animals do the same they'll eat those they'll follow those paths and they'll eat blackberries and they'll defecate on the side and that will generate new you know the new generation of blackberry seeds same with crab apples you'll pick one and you'll get a seed and you'll, you know your pip and you'll just spit it over to one side and lo and behold new crab apple trees spring up along these paths um and the same with hazelnuts you know you fill your pocket come to a hazel tree and it's producing hazelnuts you fill your pockets with them and then you're walking along and it doesn't take many to sort of fall out the side for those hazel trees to start colonizing along this path um so these are these paths are long linear very distinct environmental um environments uh and you go just beyond the path itself and you come to fields or woodlands or or whatever and you don't get those plants you're only getting them along your footpath and kind of the scales fell away from my eyes when i you know when i realize this and and i'm whenever i walk along the footpaths around me and i see these these food plants and i think about all the people in the past that have benefited from these food plants being along their footpath and how they must have added to them nurtured them um you know created new ones either on purpose or just as i described by you know spitting the pips to one side and so on um and that opens up a whole new or it does to me at least this whole new world of, of feet that had traveled along this path before you we're part of something much much greater much you know much longer history and so it, it is and um it's an absolute travesty that because we don't see that we don't see it as a distinct environment um uh it's it's such a tragedy when when someone comes along and widens that path probably for very good reasons you know for for decent reasons but actually by doing that they're grubbing out these plants and that whole environmental history is lost to you um, we see the council doing this quite often widen paths um putting down hardcore to make it more accessible but actually you know we need to find a better way of managing them and i think at least you know the point i, I make in footmarks is at least let's recognize them in the first place let's recognize these very distinct linear environments um and once we start recognize them then well maybe protection will follow and people will will, will love them that little bit more um, and there's an, another type of path that I am absolutely obsessed about, and that's when these long-lived footpaths go over, particularly down a slope or up a slope, uh, depending on your direction, uh, and over particular geologies, and they'll wear down so that they become sunken paths, or what we call hollowways. Uh, utter, utterly obsessed by them. Um, sometimes, you know, some around me are, are meters deep, meters and meters deep. You get them in, um, you know, the south and the southwest of England, and they can be ten meters deep. Some of them, literally ten meters deep, so they're right down, and they're quite dark in that when they get to that. And as a result of that sort of 
you know, semi-light. They, 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 it's not, you, you get different plants growing, not the same plants as up um, at ground level um, because they're not getting full sun, but they're also a bit more protected from frost. So you get some unusual plants growing. Quite, again, very distinctive linear environments. Um, and they're just wonderfully evocative. And you can really do, you know, you really do get that feeling of, of the feet of the past walking down them. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I walk them and try and, um, you know, take photos of them and put them up on on uh, Twitter and Instagram um, as much as I can, because, you know, well, it, seemingly everyone loves a good Holloway. And yet, and yet they are not protected. You know, we don't see them as heritage assets we don't see them as scheduled you know we don't see them as monuments um they don't fall in i mean this is the bizarre thing that historic england has a very strict definition of what a monument is um which has to be constructed and of course these aren't constructed they are worn down um so they they, they don't fall within the remit of or the definition of, of a monument therefore they cannot be protected as scheduled monuments um the way that you could protect a hill fort or a henge monument or stone circle or whatever you know those those things have legal protection which means a landowner can't just come and remove them they, they they're important to all of us and yet holloways fall out from that fall out with of that of, of that sort of protection and that sort of definition um and so part of what i've been trying to to say is hey let's love these things even you know i know people already do love them but let's recognize them as proper monuments because they are truly monumental especially when they're you know when you're walking down something that's even just three four meters deep let alone something six seven eight nine ten meters deep that you are you do feel like you're in a monument of some sort so i think the definition of monument needs to change and i think we need to then schedule these as monuments because they are being grubbed out um, or, or infilled actually is what's happening and that's happening around me quite a bit as i'm seeing um you know we have quite a lot of forestry england woodland around us and and they 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 get damaged in the process of of uh harvesting plant tree plantations and then they just get infilled and then they essentially erased from the landscape and that to me is an utter tragedy these things are, are old you know to get to erode a path down um by even just a meter takes hundreds of years or decades and decades um and some of the really deep ones are actually not just hundreds of years but thousands of years old Again, my, my colleague, Martin Bell, um, who's a, an environmental archaeologist, um, managed, I mean, amazingly, managed to date a Holloway down in Kent, getting a nice deep Holloway. And he was able to quite clearly show that it had started out as a path in the late Bronze Age. Um, so this is a path that was created in the late Bronze Age and is still in use as a path now, albeit heavily eroded down into the ground i mean that's mind-blowing isn't it i mean that's just extraordinary um so you literally are walking in the past when you're walking down these these routeways um and that yeah that, i just find that wonderful and i just would like to see better recognition of them and better protection and it recognize you know i think writers and artists and people have been recognizing holloways for a long time but i'd like to see it go even beyond that i'd like to see um academics recognizing them as something special i'd like to see historic england and 
um, uh, um, historical environment in Scotland and so on, recognising these as distinct, important, heritage, what they describe as heritage assets, something that needs to be protected and of national importance. So that's my that's my little personal mission. <laughs> and it's interesting because you you make a really good case there for the kind of the ecological significance of these of these pathways, but then also align that with with love and us protecting what we love. Um, and a lot of kind of the the lure and the fetishization of 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 monuments and the kind of the big monuments comes also from that way that we myth make around them. So is there also um, a way of connecting with the with the sort of the spiritual and and mythic element of footpaths as well, do you think? Yeah, they're, they're, well, there always is. As I say, I mean, just with monuments, the, you know, the stories attached to these footpaths are as important as anything else. Um, you know, footpaths are interesting because unlike, you know, henges or whatever, it's very rare to actually get deposits associated with them. Martin was very lucky when he managed to get some deposits associated with them in in, in Kent so that he was able to date it. Um, but they don't always because they are eroding down. So really, if you don't have the archaeological resource to, to work on, other than, say, the plants along them, then what you have left are the, the stories and the um, mythologies and and the so on and and those are just as important and i see absolutely no reason why we shouldn't you know just get a schedule of schedule something for its uh cultural importance including the myths that surround the myths and stories that surround it for uh, as any other reason though you know i think myths and stories are and archaeology are all part of the same thing in a sense Mm. And they're also a way of of connecting. And just to to flip to talk more about footmarks and the way that you portray in that this idea of of movement being really kind of the the vital force to the evolution of mankind. Really, do you think there's a lot that we can learn in the present in terms of movement actually being a really? Yeah, I mean, so. Um... The the, the 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 book footmarks is conceived as a kind of journey in itself. So it goes from the very small scale at the beginning, so those footsteps, the footprints, um, building up to the paths that we just talked about, roads and Roman roads, and then bigger travels with cattle and so on. And then the really the last few chapters are concerned with the really big travels and the, the sort of travelling around, you know, the early travels around the world, uh, sort of Marco Polo type stuff, but also the big migrations. And and I think this is the really unifying thing. Um, uh, and and one, of the, one of the real big revolutions in archaeology is, is, is our better understanding of ancient DNA and the realisation that actually we, we are all migrants. Um, uh, of course we are. And, and, and we've as humans, we've been, we've always been moving, and just constantly, um, you know, pretty much constantly through the past, we we are just going, we're just travelling and um, uh, moving from place to place. And so, when we see these sort of, you know, whenever we see these stories 
um, particularly in in the in the press recently and from the government, the the, the the way they kind of the way they talk about modern day migrants who are moving for loads and loads of different reasons. You know, some of it might be warfare. Sometimes it's for economic reasons or hope and hope for something better somewhere else you know the grass is always greener and so on and so on there's loads of reasons people are moving or to join families or so on um it's not one thing but these people that are moving now are doing exactly what you and i and everyone else have in terms of our sort of ancestor in terms of our sort of history our heritage have always done we've always been moving it's completely you know this it's often we often frame them as this sort of other thing well we've always been here we're here this is our land who are these other people coming into it and i think by understanding archaeology better understanding our heritage better um doing more work on ancient dna and you know really sort of creating these stories of, of how we've all only got here by people moving um, <clears throat> will help us not to other these migrants, but see them as part of a very long, very venerable tradition of just simply being human. And that involves moving. Um, you know, I've spent most of my life moving uh, either to different countries, but also around the UK as well. So, um, you know, I, I I think that's what I think that's where archaeology can really help with with some of these situations. Is to say, actually, you know, this is just part of being human, um, and so let's stop let's stop othering people, seeing them as as different, and actually have a little bit of compassion about things. And does that link as well to how you? examine the relationship between movement and power in the book as well which I guess is also very relevant to modern times where you know every day we see disputes over who controls how people move where people can move to and then who suffers also because of that um and I mean I'm interested in how you look at that in the book um and then also kind of what we can learn from the past in that respect Mm, yeah, so I mean, I think you know, mo moving, moving has these sort of two sides to it. On the one side, it's it's this wonderful freedom, you know, it's, um, a, a great sense of of uh, creativity, and you know, walk walking is just really, really good for you. And and um, we've been able to, you know, certainly I'm able to do. You know, I'm very privileged to be able to move around as I as I like, but actually. Um, that's not always been the case and certain groups have have been limited and certain um people have been have been limited so in the in the i spent quite a bit of time in the book actually talking about those th those two sides sort of the freedom of movement um and how culturally we've always been moving but actually how certain people have always been limited um, and I, I kind of do that through the, the lens of the enclosures, the enclosure periods, um, uh, which I think are, are absolutely fascinating, um, quite beyond my own personal uh, specialism, which is prehistory. So it was quite hard for me to write, but it was also utterly fascinating. Um, so there were, there were two big enclosure periods I mean enclosure is sort of a, a strange thing because there's a whole load of different things that create 
the same kind of outcome. Um, but generally speaking, you can bundle them into two separate things. And the first enclosures happen around the um, 15th and early 16th century. Um, and that's when uh, wool was just much more, was, was really um, uh, um, demanded a really high price. So it was worth more um, to these big, big landowners than people um, uh, living, than the rent from people living in villages on them. And so actually what they did was to depopulate huge villages, huge swathes of the landscape were depopulated and turned over to to, to um, uh, sheep rearing and, and, and so they get more money from wool. And that, part of that was also changing common land to uh, sheep grazing. And this common land was used by, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people for their their livelihoods for their living for collecting firewood to collecting herbs and medicines to collecting you know edible things and and or, or um so on and so on and so that was the first period and i talk about a, a deserted medieval village not too far from me on the yorkshire walls uh, called warren percy um which was depopulated um, and I just find it fascinating. I mean, these people, so in, on the one instance, the movement is just removed. So the, these villages just then fall silent. But of course, the people themselves are shifted off and they become almost perpetually moving, um, these sort of shifting mobile labourers looking for work. And now all of a sudden they're sort of having to, to you know, sell their labour labor and become peddlers and so on. And, and so they're perpetually moving. Um, and then the other big enclosures period was parliamentary enclosure in the early 19th century, when, again, um, it was, you know, loads of things going on. And but, but the sort of the old style of doing things where people used common land, again, for herbs and medicines and firewood, but also, you know, you had bodgers making chairs and um, you know, you just had this, the entire industries, were, were, rural industries, um, used the, this common land. And what happened with again the big landowners just turned wanted that to be productive farmland. Um, and there were all sorts of changes going on. Corn was very, very high um, because of the Napoleonic Wars, and so they they wanted to turn it over to um, uh, to, to, to growing things, and, and they created. So they just essentially almost overnight just got rid of common lands uh, created very straight hedges made of hawthorn um very narrow new footpaths closed off old footpaths created new ones and people's lives changed overnight and all of a sudden they found that they were immobile on one hand they couldn't get across these common lands that they used to access quite easily um, uh, but they also, uh, on the other hand, found themselves having to basically no longer were there these bodges and so on. They were having to to sell their own labour. So rather than creating their own kind of personal um, rural industry, they were having to sort of become labourers in a sense. And so, you, so people have always controlled movement. And you know, loads of laws in the past sort of um, big landowners never really like. The, the, the peasants moving around too much they like to be able to control them and for quite large periods of time people you know really they required if you were from the sort of the lower echelons of, of life you needed permission from the landowners kind of almost like a sort of passport to move 
Um, and of course, it was always much harder for women to move. I mean, it's almost always associated with prostitution if women were moving by themselves and didn't have a, a letter of permission from their husband or father or whatever you know so i think that that the two sides of mobility which is the freedom to move on the one side and then essentially the flip side of that is the restrictions of mobility are absolutely fascinating um and again that no doubt existed right the way back into our deep past as well um, control movement and you control the people basically do you think movement can be revolutionary and i guess the second question to that is do you think oh absolutely yeah they so the um you know the, the the in terms of the revolutionary aspects um going on a protest march is is one way of using movement um, as a as a form of protest, as a form, you know, and, and this has a, a very venerable heritage in this country. It goes back a long way, and you know, it goes back to say the levellers that were, that would go round during the enclosure periods um, as big groups, and and you know, using sticks, literally level the hedges and the the fences that had suddenly appeared to and closed off this land that had previously been sort of accessible to them. Um, incidentally, I should say that the land, there's got this misconception that common land was owned by the common people and it never was. It was always owned by someone, you know, usually a big landowner. So ownership never or rarely changed. Um, uh, but but there were common rights for people to use them. And that's what changed with, the, with their rights. Um, as, but anyway, you know, so you get the big groups of, of levellers that would go around. Um, people rioted in almost every town in this country at some point at what was happening in during enclosure periods, particularly that latter enclosure period. Um, and yeah, there's, there, there is brute force in, in, in people getting together and move, you know, using their movements to to protest at something. If ever you've been part of, of a protest march, there is something really kind of, you know, um, sort of this, there's this kind of deep emotional quality where you're all moving together en masse and you're going through maybe chanting the same things, holding banners and so on. And it is scary for the for the establishment when this happens. You know, oh, people are revolting. And of course, they have a word for it, you know, uh, the mob. Um, the mobile vulgus, the, the people on the move, um, and and from mob you have, you know, all sorts of uh, mob-handed, mobster, and so on. All these negative connotations. People, you know, the big landowners, they never really liked people getting together and moving on mass. So I think there is a, you know, there is a real sense that you can use your movements to um, to protest at something that you're not happy with. Um, and and of course you know the the, the very famous one uh, is the the um, uh, Kinder Scouts uh, um, uh, uh, whatever you want to call it uh, mass trespass is the way it's usually but you know it's sort of a, 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 a group of people unhappy with the 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 closing off of of uh, um, moorland that was then going to be used as as grouse shooting um, as part you know part of a shooting estate. Um, and they 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 came five hundred or so ramblers and walkers, people from all sorts of echelons of life came and just trespassed en masse. Um, and gamekeepers and landowners came out and they battled. Um, people were hospitalised. The police were involved. Many of the trespassers were arrested. But but these sorts of things, there was there was there were 
quite a few of them. That was the most famous, but there were a few of them. These, you know, the public butting heads with landowners that were closing off footpaths and access to to what was previously accessible land. Um, and actually, that that Kinder Scout mass trespass has led ultimately to um, the 2000 right to roam um, and uh, led to national parks being formed and, and you know, led to all sorts of positive things. So movement, mobility in that sense um, can be extraordinarily powerful. Mass trespass can be very powerful. And we are seeing it again now because we are seeing people closing off footpaths and what can we do? Well, we can walk them. That's what we can do. And if we're confronted by somebody, we can say, I have a right. I have a basic right as a human being to use this path and I'm going to walk across it. Um, but, there's, you know, there are plenty of big landowners who have closed off their land to anyone um, and there are no footpaths across it. And, and again, there, there are... There's a, there's a huge movement now to, to to trespass across it and demand access because, you know, nearly all of the, you know, the vast majority of the land is owned by the very, very small. Just as we um, we forget that the footsteps that travelled along the footpaths, we also forget that it's not just bodies that travel along paths, it, it's language as well. And so in walking those paths, it's literally a way of giving voice to um, and enabling voices that might not otherwise be heard and, and enabling the cross-pollination of, of language and ideas. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, you can you can sort of pick up some of that in the prehistoric period. You know, you can start seeing when when people become... You know, particular points in the in the Neolithic, actually, when um, everything starts becoming a lot more diverse and a lot more sort of interregional, and presumably mobility really changes. Then, so you can start to see actually some of those things in the archaeological record and the historical record as well. And it's really, you know, it's really really important that we carry on moving around and. I'm interested also because I know that you look at, at different ways of travel and not just on foot, but traveling specifically on foot is, is a slower way of travel. And I wonder, although it's a book about mobility, is it also in a sense a book about stillness? I think I think it is. Um, and um, a few people have said to me, why didn't you make more of that side of it? Um, I could have done. I had when I was when I was trying to sell the book to different publishers lots of publishers said well why is you know you don't you don't cover train mobility for example or canals or whatever and I, I'm, I'm not interested in I mean I could do of course I could and there's some really important histories to be told there but really it was about feet and and that slower way of moving um uh so um uh, you know, it is it is a book about about stillness. I was like, um, uh, when when I was in, uh, um, where was it? I was at a, a conference in Jordan, and we were out in the desert. And uh, um, one of the locals said to me, "Are oh, we we like to move at the speed of a? Oh no, that's right. He said the the spirit moves at the speed of a camel." Um, and if you if you move, you know, and a camel's a very slow, sedate animal, so they've got a sort of rhythm to them as you move. Um, if you move, if you get into a car and you move 
uh, you know, travel by car, actually you leave your spirit behind because the spirit just will move at the, the speed of a camera. I love that idea. Um, and I think, I do think that's true of, of walking that, you know, my, my spirit it feels like, you know, my spirit moves at the speed of, of the feet. And as soon as you start doing anything else, um, which of course you have to do from time to time, but as soon as you do anything else, actually it, it changes. It's not quite the same. What have you personally learned through this research? Has your relationship? Um, I think it has. Definitely it has. I've always been a big walker. I love, I've always loved walking. You know, that's where my interest in to write the book came from in the first place. Um, but I do have a very different relationship with walking now. I'm much more, um, my eyes are much more open to various elements, you know, not just the, the environments along the paths, um, or the dates of Holloways, for example, but you know, lots of lots of aspects of of moving around. I think probably the the biggest one of the biggest revelations to me was the realization that so much of our pre enclosure landscape. So if you can try and take away those later enclosures, the the narrow hawthorn hedge paths and all the rest of it, and see that that earlier landscape under it. So much of that actually relates to the movement of animals, um, particularly the movements of, of you know livestock, which is a word I, I don't particularly like very much. Call an animal a livestock is a bit weird, but um, it is for the movement of, of livestock and um, particularly a type of movement known as transhumans, which is where you take your animals up to summer pasture in the uplands and then bring them down to the, 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 the fertile valleys in the winter times. Um, and I tell that there's wonderful stories in in that about particularly young women going up with the cattle and spending time up in the summer pastures. Um, my my eyes were really open to that, and I I became very aware, and I still am very aware of how much of the British landscape is, and and the, the British and the Irish landscape is actually based around transhumanist movement much, much more than I think we ever recognised. So I think that's, that's one of the biggest <clears throat> changes in the way I understand the landscape is actually pretty much it's all about moving animals. And it's interesting, actually, in walking those old paths, it's very much more a com... We talked about control of movement and actually in the past, it was the landscape and our conversation with the landscape that was informing where we could walk and where we would travel. Whilst now we kind of we build um higher speed means of traveling that might involve, <laughs> well, there's a tree there, we're just gonna cut it down. <laughs> we don't go around things, um, and we don't we don't listen. So I guess that kind of ties in with what you were saying of being of an awareness of how you walk and how people used to walk, and that being very much more um in in conversation literally with our surroundings rather than just this kind of dominating narrative really yeah absolutely um i think i mean you know mo most most roads come from earlier paths not all of them of course many are new many more recent ones are completely new and they do just obliterate the land you know go through but many roads are actually based on earlier roads which are based on paths um and so i think that that particularly you know i i, I live in north yorkshire and um live on the north york moors and the roads around me are very many of them once you're away from the enclosure period 
of you know from the moors and, and down on the valley once you're away from that enclosure period roads actually the roads are really really wiggly and you do get a real sense a proper sense of actually this the meandering nature of of earlier paths and therefore the meandering nature of people's movements um so yeah i think that uh yeah i think we we would be we have lost something in the way we create paths now there are so many other paths that we could have explored um, with your book and, and your research, Gemma. And if people want to connect with your work, um, your book, your research, um, hearing you speak, perhaps, where can they? Um, well, I'm, I'm still using the social media site formerly known as Twitter. Um, uh, I know people are not so much now, but no one's invited me to the to blue sky so i'm still using twitter and it seems like a good still seems to me to be a good place to sort of share information and so on so i'm on there and they can link up with me and i put up um regular photographs of holloways and stuff i'm also on instagram which is uh, which which is where um, i first connected with you and um i put up uh, pictures of holloways and things there the book of course is usual places um and so yeah just uh, um connect with me in some way connection is key <laughs> i love that i'll put all of that in the show notes as well for people who are who are curious to follow up on this conversation and my final question jim that i ask all of my guests which you may have anticipated is what does oh i didn't anticipate that and um <laughs> Joy for me is a, is a is an afternoon walk, a proper walk, not a short walk, but a good few hours worth of walk on a nice sunny afternoon, and that's exactly what I'm planning on this afternoon. Um, and so, yeah, joy joy is a is a is a walk with my family and the dog, and um, the sun is shining, and it's just a beautiful day. I am so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast and if you've enjoyed today's episode I would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support, perseverance and joy further. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.